The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Mark chapter 9. Uh, the text that we're looking at today is only uh, verses 30 through 37. And so allow me to read it and then we'll pray and then we'll get into what the word says. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when uh, he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? And they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. So sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes this uh, one, uh, one child, little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can come together here in spirit and in truth and pray that our uh, worship would be purified uh, through the uh, atoning sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So we live in a world that is, that is flooded with superlatives. Uh, we're constantly forming opinions and we're constantly having arguments about what is the best in some area. It might be in the area of commerce. Uh, you know, what's the best coffee chain? Obviously, it is Caribou Coffee. What is the best fast food restaurant? If you're a Christian, it has to be Chick-fil-A. And uh, yes, thank you. We apply it to how we shop. Last fall, I was looking for some wireless earbuds, and I would just do a search on uh, wireless earbuds, and you wouldn't believe how many different articles there were that, would, that said the, the best wireless earbuds under $50. And every one of those different websites had a different opinion about which one is the best under uh, $50. And if you park in the back of Mora High School and you go uh, into those doors that lead almost directly into the cafeteria, there's this big sign outside it and says, Welcome to the world's greatest high school. Uh, the district wants to communicate that when you walk through those doors, you are entering into greatness. When we watch sports, we're always on the hunt for who the goat is. And love him or hate him, Tom Brady is probably going to be the goat of football for a while. Uh, Michael Jordan, I don't care what you say about LeBron James, Michael Jordan is always going to be the goat of basketball, and there's really no argument about that. Uh, Simone Biles in gymnastics, there's it's going to be a long time till there are some women that are able to do the kind of things that she's been doing. It'll take a while for someone to get as many medals in the Olympics as Michael Phelps. We are magnetically attracted to greatness. In theological terms, uh, we might say that there is something within our souls that longs for glory. Uh, so we extrapolate those things into different spheres of our, uh, of our lives. Uh, we not only look to it in popular culture, but we also strive for that greatness and we strive for that glory in our individual uh, lives. You know, think about uh, the advent of social media. 
the, the goal of Mark Zuckerberg when he created Facebook was to be able to connect people. But rather than connecting people, and there are some people that are, that are good into it, it has actually turned into Vanity Fair, where people are less you know, concerned about connecting with people and more concerned with getting likes and recognition. So today we're going to continue the series in the Gospel of Mark, which seeks to teach us what it means to follow Jesus in discipleship, both uh, uh, practically and, and simply. And so in chapter 9, in these verses we uh, just looked at, Jesus wants to recalibrate, uh, and not even recalibrate, but radically reform our understanding of what true greatness is. And so Jesus, in his call to follow him, to be his disciple, is calling you and me to greatness. But it is a greatness that looks nothing like the world uh, looks to in greatness. We're going to look at three things today. The first is we're going to look at the model of greatness. Then we're going to look to the means of greatness. And then we're going to see the result of true greatness. So let's look at that first thing today. Is we need to look to the model of true greatness we need to look to Jesus as the, the perfect model of greatness. You know, over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark, the, the person and work of Jesus is such a radical paradigm shift for the disciples that they have no mental framework for how to figure this Jesus out. It's as if their brains are completely on overload trying to understand him. Immediately before our passage, the disciples had learned a key lesson in discipleship. And that is that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must have a disposition of desperation. You must have a disposition of dependence on Jesus. Every moment of every day. And now as the sun sets on that particular scene in the Gospel of Mark, uh, now in verses 31, 30 and 31... Jesus moves them from Galilee to, toward Capernaum and has a private lesson plan that will once again utterly confound them. Look at me. Uh, look, yeah, look at me. Look with me. Ugh, talk about vanity, right? Uh, whew, I should just pray and get off of this thing. All right, he tells them in verse 31. He says, um, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and uh, after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now, put yourself here in the disciples' position. They've seen Jesus do some wild things. They've seen him heal the incurable disease. Uh, they have seen him uh, restore sight to a, to a blind man. They have seen him uh, feed thousands of people with only uh, five loaves of bread and, and, and two fish. Uh, they have seen him uh, exercise some of the most terrifying demons that, uh, that have been around. I mean, this man walked on water for crying out loud. And now in the pinnacle of the Gospel of Mark, back in chapter 8 and verse 29, Jesus asked all the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responds to them by by saying, you are the Messiah. In other accounts, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're sort of looking at the same thing here. And what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the one that 
the, the Israelite people have been looking and longing for all the way since Adam and Eve fell into sin back in the Garden of Eden. Their understanding of who the Messiah would be had nothing to do with suffering. It had nothing to do with death. It had everything to do with a triumphant victory. And so further, they had just learned this crucial lesson that following Jesus means absolute dependence on him every moment of every uh, day. And so in their minds, if he dies, well then what? How can we depend on him if he's gone? They remember what life was like before Jesus. And perhaps you do too, and they didn't want to go back to that. And so now in verse 32, they have no way of, of comprehending this, and so their confusion leads to fear. Look in verse 32. They did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. In Matthew's account of this instance, it says that they were deeply distressed. This, this troubled them. But what they were missing was that Jesus was laying out the formula here for true greatness. That he, what they heard was this future Jesus, who was this weak and helpless victim that would be killed by wicked men. And what they were not hearing was the words of Jesus all the way back in, well, all the way in John chapter 10 in uh, verses 17 through 18, when he said, this, this is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it back up. You know, they weren't listening to Jesus' purpose in John chapter 10, in verses 11 through 14, when he said that I am the good shepherd. And that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away. And when he, when he sees a wolf coming, and the wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. So to know Jesus is to know true greatness. Jesus was truly God. And he was also truly man. And as such, none of us would have faulted him if, as the incarnate deity on earth, he would have come and said, I, I'm God, y'all should serve me. But that's not what he does here. That's how most other religions function, but not Jesus. One chapter later in, in, in Mark, uh, Jesus would have to once again teach the disciples this same lesson again. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Paul translates that in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so the translation of that then is that Jesus is the ultimate example of what greatness is. And there's an element of which, yes, we're not going to be great like Jesus. None of us are the incarnate Son of God or ever could be. He and he alone could live the perfect life. He and he alone could die the death that we deserved. And he and he alone could, could raise himself from the dead. But Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he tells us to adopt the same attitude of that, of Christ Jesus. That is to look to him to be the model of greatness. Laying down your life for the good of others. And then practice the means of greatness, which is giving your life and service to people so that they would know the greatness of Jesus. And that leads us right into our second point is that we should practice the means of true greatness, which is servanthood. Practice the means of true greatness, servanthood. You know, I wish that I could say that the denseness of the disciples uh, were, uh, well, would be surprising to me, but it, it's really not. And it's not because I am the exact same way as the disciples. I can come home, and I can put my keys in my wallet somewhere, and then I got to go pick up one of the kids five minutes later. I'm asking my wife, where are my keys? As if she took them and hid them somewhere. I had that this morning in Sunday school. I turned on the TV and I couldn't find the remote two minutes later. I'm sitting on the music stand. Uh, there have been more than a few times in which Julie has allegedly told me something already, and so she thinks she's reminding me, and I'm saying, well, no, <laughs> this is actually the first time you've told me. She's probably right. Um, and so uh, maybe it's because I'm a guy, or maybe it's because I'm a musician, and as a musician, we're by default scatterbrained. Um, but I have no problem finding solidarity with these 12 guys here. Because I have the same thing. And if you look in your heart, you'd probably see the same thing. We are a forgetful people. And as this passage is absolutely uh, amazing to me, because when we look back on what transpired here just a, a, in the past few vignettes, which take place only over the course of, of, of a day or two, these disciples continue to show that they don't get it. Back in verses 14 through 29, what we looked at last week, they were utterly embarrassed publicly because they were not able to exercise this demon out of uh, this boy. They had done it before out of the power that Jesus had given him. He said, go out and, and, and tell people about me, heal the sick, uh, uh, get the, the demons out of people. And so they came to this little boy and they wanted to do the same sort of methodology, the same sort of actions, the same words that they had. And whereas before they had success, here they are looking like absolute failures. Peter, James, and John weren't there, and maybe that's why they, they came to this, uh, uh, this, thing, this argument on the road to Capernaum here, in verse, starting in verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, well, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the, the greatest. 
do you get the the irony of what is going on here? We can look at this and we can say, I mean, golly, seriously, guys, like, how do you not know this? I mean, you had the privilege of hanging out with Jesus all the time. But then that is exactly, I think, giving the disciples a little too much credit. Folks, these, these men had just suffered public embarrassment because they couldn't do what they claimed to do which was get this demon out of this boy. And the very next day, they were arguing with each other about who is the greatest? Come on, guys. It was just yesterday that you all showed yourselves to be boneheads. And now we think we're superstars. It's like that little kid who struck out three times in a game, and he gets in the car and says, yeah, I think I'm pretty much the best person on my team. Uh, the MLB is looking pretty good. Either it's denial or he's totally forgotten what just happened in the batter's box three times. But we're all like that, right? We've, uh, we want to be seen and we want to be known. Uh, it might be materially. There was this guy that lived a few houses down in our neighborhood when I, when I lived in Nebraska. And he mowed his lawn twice a week. And he was out every day picking up anything that would be out there. No joke, I saw the guy measuring his grass one time. He had the best lawn in the neighborhood. He wanted to be known as the lawn guy. You know, maybe you want to be known for having really sweet technology in your fishing boat. Maybe uh, you're one of those that want to swap out your phone every year so that you have the latest iPhone. Uh, you know, we forget that he who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He who dies with the most toys dies. Just like everybody else. And here, the superlative drive also affects how we approach social media. And again, I understand the purpose of what social media was, was created for. And some of, some of you do a really good job of just posting memories and using it as a digital time capsule. You know, totally cool. But the number of times that I have seen people take obsessive amount of selfies and doing all of their, their TikTok things and wanting to be seen as professional dancers out there. It's crazy. I made a TikTok account one time. Not so that I can dance. You don't want to see that. Um, I used to break dance, but I'd probably break myself now if that were, if that were the, the, the case. And I only kept it for a week because it curates these videos for you, especially when you start an account to see, you know, what you like. And I, I didn't click on anything or whatever. And in that week, I, I see people trying to do these dances or whatever, and, and someone spouting off their political ramblings. And, and there are some things that I wish I would never have seen. And I can't be the judge of their hearts, but it seems quite obvious that their goal of this is to get as many people as possible to like and comment or, or heart or whatever it is that you're supposed to do. And it's to gain influence over strangers, to be known as somebody. 
when we are selling ourselves, selling our children, and letting them sell themselves to a, to a world that is constantly wanting to argue who is the greatest. And some of us will give over way more than ourselves than we ever intended to in order to pursue this pseudo-narcissistic dream of being known. Verse 33, Jesus obviously knew what they were arguing about here on the road. But he wanted them to verbalize it. To say it out loud because saying out loud would get them to hear how ridiculous what they're saying is. Now in verse 35, he gives them and certainly us today a greater vision of greatness. It says, sitting down... He called the twelve to him and said, If anyone wants to be first, then he must be last and servant of all. For a, a teacher or a rabbi to sit in Jesus' time uh, was essentially the signal that the school bell is ringing and class is in session. The rabbi is going to, to teach. And he's going to teach them something important. And as radical as his lesson that he taught them back then was, it is certainly more radical today. To be great, to be truly great, is to forget about yourself and to remember other people. It is to do what Paul calls us in Philippians chapter 2 again, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. It's totally countercultural. True greatness is a matter of the heart. It is humility in action. And what this might mean is that you give up your social media account or repurpose it. It might mean that you sell your golf clubs. It might mean that you uh, look at your budget and you, you clean out your, your coffee budget and you put it towards world missions or, or a humanitarian organization. This might mean that you look over your schedule and you prioritize serving VBS or Etiwana or leading a small group Bible study here to spend time with neighbors in the hope of telling them about Jesus. This might even mean that you consider giving up your comforts here in Mora, Minnesota so that you can go somewhere else in the world to proclaim the name of Jesus among the nations. There's sacrifice that is involved here. We live in a world that is a me-first world, a world that will never understand this kind of greatness. And so we need to practice that, give up ourselves for the goodness of others and the glory of God. And third, we need to experience the result of true greatness, which is getting more of God. It's getting more of God. So verses 36 through 37, uh, they not only show us an illustration of the countercultural greatness, but also the unique reward that it brings. Look with me in verse 36. He took a child and had him stand among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Again, this is not difficult to transfer over what was going on in the culture of Jesus to uh, the culture of, of today. 
In Jesus' day, uh, the mortality rate for, for children was, was very high. And so they didn't esteem children very highly until they, became, until they got to an age of maturity in which viability was, you know, barring any accidents, uh, more than likely going to happen. In terms of the social hierarchy, children were at the, at the bottom. And it's, uh, it's been a fascinating week, as I mentioned before, to be an American. With the leak of this... Um, potential decision, and again, it's potential, we, it, it's not finalized yet, of the, the reversal of, of Roe v. Wade, we've gotten a front row seat to the wickedness of support for legalized abortion. From the hour that the draft was leaked, the response has been sad and terrifying. I've seen videos, uh, read posts and newsreels with everything of people complaining that we're going to go back to the dark ages to government leaders calling this as a, as a right-wing attack on, on women. And there have been tweets that have blatantly called for the persecution and extinction of evangelical Christians because of this. And most horrifying is a slew of videos that I saw of people saying that abortion should be good because aborted children would actually make for good renewable energy. Man. When Molech, the Canaanite god of, chi of children and, and human, and especially, specifically child sacrifice, is threatened, we see his wrath before our eyes. This is satanic. And so when Jesus takes this child and stands him before the disciples, it, it, it is to grab our cultural attention just as much as it does in Jesus' day. Anyone who's ever even babysat before knows how much work and sacrifice it is to raise a child. They are needy. They're emotional. They take a lot of time. They're expensive. They're completely dependent, and they are exhausting. When you have children in the home, there is a lot that you just simply cannot do that you would want to do because you need to be with them. And so you put off your, your hobbies or your, your, your likes for a little while. To love and to serve children requires continually giving yourself over and over for their good. And Jesus uses this illustration right in front of them to show that true greatness is welcoming and receiving such a person like them in Jesus' name. To call uh, for, uh, the, the call to greatness is to love and to care for and to serve the small, the powerless, and the seemingly insignificant in our world. It is to be like Jesus in breaking the social norms by accepting and taking on a lower status in the culture and risk losing potential, uh, uh, potential power and, uh, and prestige. To the world, welcoming and serving such people is loss. But what Jesus says here is that when we do this, 
it is great gain. Because when we do this, we are welcoming God himself. You see, we're not accepted by God if we make ourselves last so that others can be first. It's an issue of the heart. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we could be to be accepted by God. The only means of acceptance of God is by his grace. His undeserved, unmerited favor. By his grace we are saved through the vehicle of faith in Jesus. And when we first give our lives over to the lordship and to the leadership and the authority of Jesus, we ideally should see these areas of growth within our, our lives. To know him, to love him, to serve him. And as those things happen, he shows himself to us more and more. And one way that we can see more and more of him is if we stop looking to ourselves and looking to him as the greatest among us and so that we can serve others so that he can be made known. In his book, Gorgias, Greek philosopher Plato he writes a sentence that even though he was, he was far back in our history, that really echoes through today. He said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Well, I think our modern day prophet Bob Dylan should step in here and say, you got to serve somebody. And here, Jesus tells us that the path to true happiness, the path to true greatness and happiness in life is only found when we put ourselves last. Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 16. He said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus. And Jesus alone is the goat. The greatest of all time. And he asks us to follow in greatness by giving ourselves up and following him. Will you consider giving yourself completely to Jesus today? Let's pray.